and the messages in the cabin in those final moments, you know, it's mainly shouting and the captain can be heard yelling, the bow is down, get into your rafts, throw all your rafts into the water, everybody get off, get off the ship, stay together. Welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. My name is Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be digging into a very recent shipping disaster. We're going to be talking about the sinking of the El Faro cargo ship in 2015. And I apologize already at the start if I'm pronouncing these wrong, um, but we'll see how we go. I wanted to pick this topic for the first episode because it's it's something that happened only five years ago to me that just seems crazy uh, that a ship would sink so catastrophically um in quite recent times the ship was basically sailed directly into a hurricane and in a time when we have so much gps so much tracking so much weather monitoring it seems kind of mad that this is something that could have taken place especially when you know there in 2015 there was still such a focus on keeping people safe let's discuss the sinking of the el faro danielle randolph grew up in coastal maine and always knew that she wanted to work out at sea she had a family history of being in the Navy, and she enrolled in the Maritime Academy straight out of school before joining the company Tote, which is T-O-T-E, to start sailing. She was looking forward to having a 10-week break off for Christmas when she boarded the El Faro in late September 2015. So before we go into that fateful journey, uh, I'd like to just talk a little bit about the ship itself, and that will help us in terms of understanding what, what happened. The El Faro was a relatively old cargo ship. Uh, it was built in 1975, so it was hitting its 40th birthday. And it was generally pretty clear that the ship itself wasn't at the top of its game. When I'm not, I'm not a boat expert, I, I will be the first to say that. So when you think about this ship, if, if you're like me and you're not, not familiar with cargo ships, it, it's pretty typical from what, what you would see, see in a port. So pretty large with lots of crates and stuff on the top of it uh, because it was a, a lift on lift off cargo ship which means that you could lift on and off the carriers the the big boxes on the top but it was also a roll on roll off cargo ship as well which means that it had basically like a big open hold within it where uh, cargo could be stored and it's important to kind of talk a little bit about those holds so the there was a closed big hold in the bottom of the ship called the three deck which is where the majority of the cargo was was held and then there was a, a an upper deck above that which was called the second deck and that was open so it it was still within the ship itself but it had kind of open windows open holes essentially to allow kind of water to come in and out as as we go the living areas then were on top of the ship so in a in a kind of tower on the top main area and that was generally where the crew spent most of their time was in that tower and was generally on on that top area an important note is that it still had open style lifeboats 
like those that were in the Titanic. So if you remember Titanic, those like very kind of rickety open uh, boats that you had to lower down into the water. And generally the crew joked several times calling it kind of an old rust bucket. So I think it was generally accepted that it wasn't the best ship and it wasn't in the best nick before it even set off. And so for this voyage, the El Faro was taking a job running from Jacksonville, Florida to San Juan in Puerto Rico. Um, it had 33 crew members on board. The majority were Americans, but there were um, a few Polish uh, men on there as well who were working on some of the machinery. The ship itself was captained by an American and a very experienced sailor called Captain Michael Davidson. And Davidson will come up quite a lot in this story. In terms of his background, he had worked sailing ships in Alaska, so he was pretty used to very wild oceans and pretty crazy weather. I haven't been to Alaska, but whenever you see it on the TV, it looks a little bit crazy with the weather, so I can understand that. Another important thing to know about Davidson was that he was reportedly trying to get another job at Tote on one of their new ships, and that might help kind of explain some of his behaviour as we go. So if we go back to the morning of the voyage, when the ship set off, there was already a warning of, of a storm at this point before they'd even left. But when they started, this was classed just as a tropical storm. So something that, you know, they were pretty pretty knowledgeable of that they had come across before. And usually, you know, tropical storms, something that they monitored, and they but they could often sail through them. But even from this very early moment, it was a very clear warning from a lot of sources that this wasn't just a tropical storm and that this would very likely turn into something, you know, much bigger. Uh, but they they watched it and, and they got all their cargo on and set off. So now into the voyage itself. We know all of what I'm about to cover because they recovered the equivalent of a black box from the El Faro once it had sunk. And this is kind of something that recorded everything that was discussed on the bridge in the 26 hours before this actual sinking. So we got a lot of insight into into the crew, into what was going on, into what they were thinking. And I think this is why this makes this case very interesting to really be able to see kind of blow by blow what was happening. Before I start getting into the timeline, um, I want to just quickly talk about how the ship was getting weather information uh, because obviously the, the hurricane is going to be a very key part of this story. In my mind, I thought a ship would just get a constant feed of information, <laughs> similar to like a GPS, right? It would just be getting constant updates of the weather and, and what was happening. But this was definitely not the case on this ship. Mainly relied on something called BVS, which was the Bon Voyage system. And this was a report that was emailed, uh, but only to the captain. And it was quite a visual system, so it would show you know, where the the weather systems were and it, it allowed them to kind of plot their journey in relation to it. All sounds good, right? But the main issue being that it was generally always about six hours out of date. So if you had a particularly unpredictable uh, weather pattern, then it, then it might not be as much use. They also had a couple of other options. So they had something called the SAT-C, 
which printed out, but then they had to manually on, you know, on a big map plot out where the where the weather was, which, you know, obviously takes time and effort. They had then, you know, information from the radio, from the broadcasts, you know, that were broadcast from the Coast Guard, lots of, you know, information from other ships in the area. So there was a lot of information from others. And then finally, they did have equipment on the ship itself to to obviously manage weather and measure weather, uh, namely something called an, an anemometer, anemometer, <laughs> which is used to measure wind speed and kind of shows if they are going towards or away from a storm. But um, unfortunately, it was broken on the El Faro. So clearly, the crew knew there was a storm. There's there's definitely no question of that. But they but did they know how big it was and did they know where it was? And it seems like they didn't. So the ship had now set sail um and was steaming towards open water. So imagine down from Florida out towards the Caribbean, just big patches of ocean. But even, you know, in the few hours since they have left, the tropical storm was already upgraded um, into Hurricane Joaquin. I think I'm saying that right, (laughs) hopefully. And it was rapidly strengthening. So they knew that this was something that was going to be big, you know, and something that they needed to to keep in mind. We'll fast forward to to 6.40am, the day before the incident, and this is the first time where the crew actually make some do something about the fact that they're sailing directly into a hurricane. So they turn the ship slightly right to try and put more space, essentially, between where they thought the hurricane would be and the route that they were going to do. And this was relatively, you know, a normal thing for them to do. Obviously, it would still be choppy. They'd still get bad weather, but then they couldn't handle and nothing they couldn't sail through. And when the crew were discussing this decision to uh, to turn, I think it's quite important to note that Davidson, the captain, made repeated remarks about being on time and being on schedule to Puerto Rico and, and to, to the arrival of this ship. Because the, the ship did have an alternative route which it could have used, they were in the open water at the moment, but the other option they had was a route called the Old Bahama Channel, and essentially that tucked behind some of the some of the smaller islands in around that area. But the islands there, in between them and the hurricane, it would you know help dampen the weather and it wouldn't be as extreme. But the problem with that route was that it would take them an additional six hours. And that six hours, Davidson just really was not willing to take that long in order to complete the journey. So let's fast forward a little now uh, to midnight uh, the day before. And Danielle had now come to take the bridge from Davidson. So she was doing the the midnight to 9am shift, something like that. And she came in and she, you know, in the handover, they obviously discussed the hurricane, they discussed the route. And she proposed taking that that channel, taking that route out. Uh, But Davidson did not accept that and did not think that they should be doing that. But so she didn't argue and she 
just took took the instruction as she was trained to from her captain. Throughout that night then, so from midnight onwards, the ship was steaming closer and closer to this storm and it, it was just rolling continually. It sounds the remarks that they were making were all about the wild ride that they were in. You know, there was definitely a, a bit of of worry and anxiety about the the size of the waves, the pressure that the ship was under. And Danielle did actually ring Davidson in the middle of the night to his quarters again to ask whether they should be diverting to somewhere of a safer region. But again, that was that was declined. And the waves at this point, you know, are really high. So I, I don't even think I can imagine them because this is a, this is a very large boat and these waves are already almost dwarfing it, almost going over it. They were coming up so high that they were going into that second deck. So that deck that I mentioned that was open, they were going into that deck and then, you know, pouring out the other side. And that's fine. It's... it's it's designed in that way to be able to be open and to allow that water in and out. But it's pretty clear that they were really going into very rough water, very rough sea. And it's possible that evening that they got a little bit of a false sense of security because they did pass relatively close to an island. Um, and that obviously kind of calmed the storm a little bit whilst they were in that vicinity. So it's possible that at that point thought, oh, we're kind of brushing the edge of it. Soon we'll be in in a better shape, in some better in better water. The cargo itself was also really struggling at this point. So there's a lot of ties holding it down. We're not doing well. Things were moving about, and it was. You know, it was it was worrying at this point, and the crew clearly knew what they were in for, but they weren't panicking. You know, there, there was no kind of imminent disaster at this point. So I'll fast forward now to 4am. So Danielle's been up there at midnight and now moving forward to 4am, which is when the captain wakes up and he heads back to the bridge. And again... He still isn't totally worried at this point. He makes some comments about how similar, you know, the waves were to his time in Alaska. Seems to be fine when he comes up and Danielle stays up there with him. But at 4.41am, so not not much later, the ship starts to run into, into the serious issues. The ship now starts to get a, a list, a serious list. And list meaning it's basically leaning to one side so when it's at equilibrium so at the balancing point in the middle it's got a significant lean to one side and no one's really sure why um obviously the ship is is being battered from all directions by the wind but it becomes pretty clear that it's not just the wind that's causing this list there must be something else going on with the ship these lists can be caused by different things. They could be caused by issues with the cargo, you know, if it's if it's loaded unevenly, um, or it could be caused by flooding. And this is a really big ship with not a lot of crew on it. So actually, there's a lot of area of the ship which just isn't visited or isn't seen by anyone, because why would they? The, the crew sticks to their quarters and they don't need to go and check on cargo particularly often. 
So they don't really know what's happening. But it was really important that they needed to to solve this list because each a ship essentially has a point in which it's able to write itself from. So imagine your little little boat in your bath. Um, if you if you push it too far on one side, you know it will always kind of write itself back into the middle. Um, but there is a certain angle that it will hit where it just cannot get back up from. And this list pushes it closer and closer to this angle, which it can't recover from. Uh, once it passes that that writing angle, essentially the ship will very likely capsize and sink. They knew that they had this problem, and so the captain sent the engineers out to figure it out what what was going wrong. And it soon became clear that the there was flooding in the three hold, so in that very big closed bit of the ship which, you know, should not, should have been watertight, it should not have water in it, was flooding. Um, And this was where a lot of the cargo was, this is where all the cars were, and it was just steadily getting full of water. So Davidson sent one of the crew there to, to immediately to start pumping out the water and see if they could get it, get as much out of it as they could. But they didn't really know where the water was coming from or where how you know how to get rid of it and they really needed to sort that before they were able to actually pump it out and you know ships have pretty powerful pumps to get rid of this water so you know it should have been a problem that they could potentially have solved but the water was continuing to rise and it was still causing an issue with the list so if we zoom in on the chief engineer he's in a dark wet enclosed room He's struggling to stand because the ship is not only being battered, but has this severe list going on. He really had to cling on. And there were only a few options for why the water was entering this, this three hold. And the most likely was that it was coming from that second level. So the one I mentioned earlier where it was open and the water was kind of freely going in and out. Essentially, there were hatches or scuttles, which joined the two decks together so this allowed you know people to pass through the decks at at various points and usually these were watertight and they were usually all checked prior to to going and making sure that they were all closed everything was was watertight that three deck was as as tight as it could be but just so happened on this one journey that one of these hatches was missed and this hatch was open and it was allowing all of this water, uh, which was flying up into the ship, to enter and flood down and just fill up that third level. And obviously, you know, there's so much water entering that deck at the moment, it rising pretty rapidly. Problem was, is that they, they knew that this, this hatch was open, but they couldn't get to it in order to close it because they had such a list it was very difficult for them to navigate across and navigate in in this, you know, very wet hatch, essentially. So at this point, Davidson came up with a pretty risky plan. Essentially, he wanted to use the winds of the hurricane to help them. And so what he did was he tried to turn the ship and allow the list to kind of go in the opposite direction so that then it opened up a bit of space for the engineer to to go in and to be able to find the hatch and close it. So 
the crew on the bridge really battled against the wind. They managed to to rotate the ship at this point, which allowed the engineer to run out, shut that hatch, you know, make sure that it was it was tight, and then keep pumping and hopefully get rid of all the water that is causing them real issues at this point. But this this has been a problem for a while now. There's a lot of water in there. They've got a lot of damage and a lot of issues already that they need to deal with. So even after this remedy, the ship was still listing. Um, and it's possible there was there was just too much water or there was water coming from somewhere else. Not really sure. But, you know, it's unlikely the crew really knew what was going on. Again, I would have thought there would be pretty accurate readings about a ship. Maybe I'm conflating shipping too much with airplanes, but would have thought that they should be able to diagnose these issues relatively easily, but clearly that wasn't happening. Really, at this point, it's pretty unlikely that the crew knew where they were even. I wonder whether at this point it's clear from the transcript that they didn't think that they were, you know, going directly into a hurricane. They still thought they were on the outskirts of it. And so they were actually going directly into the eye of this hurricane at this point. If you if you see their tracking with the tracking of the hurricane, they were going directly into it. The hurricane was very unpredictable at this point and was definitely not going the route that they thought it was from that BBS information. And that BBF, BBS information was six hours out of date and they hadn't even opened the most recent package. So they were potentially using 12 hours, you know, out of date weather information and making decisions based on that. So time for the next problem. Not not enough to just have this the fact that the, the ship is already filling with water and has a severe list. They were now going to have problems with the plant, so which is what they call the engine. And so the engine was really starting to struggle. And that was because of that list. So essentially in the in the engine itself all of the like lubricants and the fluids and all of that weren't stable because because it was listing so much so they weren't able to keep the levels up in the in the different areas of the engine and obviously this is like a 40 year old engine you know it's not in the best of of quality at this point and the engineers really fought to to try and keep the engine on board and to keep it going because you know that that was really what what could take them out of this whole situation. So at 6.13am now, so getting into the morning, the vibrations through the ship from the engine stopped. Plant engine stopped working at that point and the ship moved on to its backup power. So it did still have power, but uh, it wasn't it wasn't going anywhere. And essentially it was now at at the whim of the winds and the weather. So even though this to me sounds very catastrophic at this point you know i think i would be very very stressed the crew obviously knew that they were in trouble and that things were going wrong but they hadn't done really done much about it so they hadn't sent any distress signals at this point they hadn't contacted anyone on shore or the coast guard or anyone to you know let them know that they're having issues the majority of the crew were still in bed and hadn't even been woken up or made aware of the kind of chaos and and problems that they've been having at this point at 6:20 Danielle was even doing making coffee and was doing a coffee run for everyone that was on on the bridge. I know that people act differently in in kind of 
times of of chaos but it just seems crazy that that they're not doing any of these things i think that at this point they really thought that they were soon going to be out of this hurricane and kind of through it and out the other side pretty soon so now 30 minutes later getting towards 7 a.m uh the engine was still not coming online and it was clear that the what they had solved with the with the scuttle wasn't doing the job so the water level was still rising the list was still getting worse and they they didn't really know why they did think that they was potentially an issue with one of the fire mains so one of the large pipes that was in the three hold but they didn't really know what what the issue was and even if that was what the issue was there was very little they could do because the valve in order to shut that pipe off you know was under liters and liters and feet and feet of water so there was nothing they could do at this point there's so much water in there that the cars are literally like floating around in it so clearly they were holding a lot of water at this point they hadn't solved the problem they still had an issue you know what were they going to do so it was only at this point getting towards 7 a.m that Davidson finally, you know, instructed a distress signal went out. Davidson finally rang the designated person on shore for tote to tell them that this is the problem that they've got. But again, even in that call, you know, he said things were pretty bad, but they were going for it. They were fine. They were staying with the ship. And only at that point did he finally wake up the rest of the crew uh, to make sure that they were ready. And so I just want to very quickly talk about lifeboats So going back to the lifeboats that I mentioned earlier, the ship only had two lifeboats and they were open and hanging from rails. So like I say, very Titanic, very, very old school type lifeboats. In fact, even before this voyage, Danielle had taken a picture of the lifeboats and sent sent that to her mum. And her mum had kind of been like, oh my God you're screwed basically if if anything ever happens and Danielle agreed with her which is just a really sad really sad thing that happened right and so the problem with these lifeboats is if you've seen Titanic you know they're in pretty calm seas and they're able to you know lower this lifeboat very serenely though with no one in it um into the sea but at this point like they are in a hurricane like the winds are blowing faster than I've probably ever experienced waves are ginormous the the big cargo holds on the top of the shipping containers on the top of the boat at, at like flying into the air you know like this is absolute chaos so it was very difficult to see how they would be able to launch these lifeboats from the ship the Elfaro did, ha- did have some life rafts and these life rafts were enclosed, so they were like inflatable life rafts that then had like food and water in them, and they seemed to be a, a better option. But again, they had to be inflated and they had to be pushed from the ship in order to use them. Everything from this point then escalates very, very quickly. So, you know, we're talking half an hour ago, they were making coffee and kind of, you know, thinking that they'd solved a problem, but were still, you know, going full steam into this hurricane. But at 7.17am, they send that distress message. Ten minutes later, the crew's 
is roused and less than 10 minutes after that the captain ordered to abandon the ship so it it went badly very very quickly once once that three hold was full of water once they knew they couldn't sort it out engine goes off and suddenly there's nothing that they can do and the messages in the cabin in those final moments you know it's mainly shouting and the captain can be heard yelling the bow is down get into your rafts throw all your rafts into the water everybody get off get off the ship stay together and that's literally one of the last things on the on the message the next thing he was heard trying to convince someone that was stuck in the in the bridge to to come with them and to to get out and then at 7:39 a.m. the recording ends and the ship sinks So the distress signals and the the problems were picked up pretty quickly because they knew that the ship was out there. People on shore knew it. The family knew it. Uh, but the hurricane obviously really hampered any efforts for anyone to go and search or help in this situation. So on that day in October, the Air Force did do a sweep, uh, but they were unsuccessful in, in locating the ship or locating anyone. And the Coast Guard also attempted a search but it was only three days later, on the 4th of October, that the conditions actually cleared enough for a full search to take place and for them to try and see if they could find any survivors. They didn't find really find anyone or anything. They found a lot of debris, a lot of rubbish. They found a, a full-life raft that was inflated but had no one in it. They did locate a body on the 5th of October, uh, but it was not recovered basically the they found it from a helicopter but once they saw that it was a body they were were alerted to to another suit in the area so they went to investigate that one to see if it was anyone that was alive but unfortunately when they left the first one it then and then disappeared and that was all that they did find so it was only once you know once they'd seen all that debris once they'd seen all of the oil slicks and all of that they formally announced vessel has been lost um, and that all 33 on board were presumed lost at sea as well. In the months after this, uh, it took quite a while to actually find the ship. It was very deep water where the ship went down. And so it was only in the following year that they actually located it under the water. And then it did take them about three attempts to actually recover the equivalent of the black box the the recording device from the bridge so that they could understand what happened and i did really want to listen to it but it's only the transcript that's available apparently the audio on it is pretty terrible uh, but they have gone and transcribed everything that happened and worked with the families to to understand who was talking when which has pieced it all together so in terms of the aftermath then following months years 
were huge amounts of lawsuits, huge amounts of investigations to figure out what, you know, what happened, what went wrong. Families of the crew launched a wrongful death suit against Tote because of their failings with the with the ship itself, and that was eventually settled in the millions for the families. And in the shipping reviews and audits that happened since the incident, the main blame was focused on the captain and his decision making. So it generally all you know all the all the recommendations that came out of it generally say you know he didn't take enough measures to understand and evade the storm and that he he was the captain he was responsible for the ship and he should have taken action to make sure that the ship was safe but that said when you actually read about him and you read about his background i think it's very easy to blame him but he clearly was very safety focused. He had put his foot down in previous incidents to make sure that that the protocol was followed. But I think he was really feeling that pressure to keep the ship on time and on schedule. And whether that was to do with the to do with the job that he was trying to apply for, you know, he knew that this ship was coming towards the end of its life and soon he would, you know, would he be able to go and, and get one of the new ships? Obviously, he wanted to show that he was performing to tote bosses. And he did actually, whilst on the ship, write an email to tote about the journey back, asking for permission to deviate off course. So, you know, he clearly knew it was bad enough that on the way back, he was like, all right, we definitely won't go this route. But on the way there, he seemed to be willing to take the risk in order to make sure that they were on time. And that email to Tote asking for for permission was a real centre part of the investigation because a captain is the captain of his ship, right? He should be able to make decisions himself and not rely on anyone on shore or anyone that isn't there to make decisions. And it was Tote fostering a, a culture of having to ask permission in order to make these types of of decisions and and maybe it was maybe he felt like he couldn't make that call uh, without getting that approval from someone even though a lot of the blame does go in him you know there is a lot of acknowledgement around other issues and to me the issues with the weather data seems to be a huge thing with it being so out of date and so unreliable and also issues with the ship itself Maybe the the scuttle thing could have been prevented, but they didn't have the right you know equipment to even measure the wind. Clearly, there was more problems with with the pipes, and clearly there were huge problems with the life rafts. So those are real concerns. And just from a, I don't know, maybe I'm being naive, but from a just a general process point of view, I really would have thought that there would have been you know, dynamic updating of weather information, dynamic updating of of the status of the ship. And maybe it was just the ship's age that this just wasn't available. And I think that that throws up an interesting question around if it was a new ship, would it have made it through? Or was it, you know, or was the weather bad enough? It really didn't matter what, how good the ship was. Nothing would have would have got through that kind of hurricane. And I think that that, you know, raises some questions that that should be taken into account. So in all of these episodes, what I want to focus on at the end is actually what we learned. I think it's really 
fascinating to me anyway to talk about kind of disasters and and things that went wrong but i think that you know out of everything that goes wrong hopefully we've learned something from it and hopefully it will help prevent more issues in future the first thing the first recommendation that came out of this was really around that key training of the captain and key training of their decision making uh, along with them listening to the crew more so you know in this example like we said danielle and and other crew members did repeatedly you know question what was going on and whether they were making the right decisions the crew didn't feel like they could adequately fight their corner and and you know i understand on ships you have to have this hierarchical nature but the crew should still feel like they are being listened to and you know that their problems are being taken into consideration one of the big changes that that came out of this was reform about the lifeboats so any ships that had those types of lifeboats were contacted and really encouraged to to not have it coast guard had inspected this ship relatively recently before it sailed so the coast guard were more than aware that ships were sailing with these kind of inadequate lifeboats inadequate methods inadequate equipment and they were fine with it so there was quite a lot of criticism of the coast guard and and how they managed that and whether ships should be allowed to go out with that level of of kit there was a lot of blame on tote and you know allowing tote to to use those really old vessels it's very clear that those vessels are still used all around the world today but reform from the coast guard around inspecting those types of vessels and making sure that they were followed up on and really considered was very important and then finally there was a lot of regulations after this actually around how the engines work when the ship does have a list so you know a ship can have a list and be fine so the engine should work when it has a relatively severe list and so there was a lot of communications that went out to to all ships to inspect their engines and to make sure that the engines could maintain that level of of lubricant and oil and all the rest of it when when the ship was actually you know listing and actually on its side not all the way on its side you know what i mean i think there are important things that came out of this especially around the lifeboats around the engines around the captain and the crew and and what happened and there hasn't been a shipping disaster of the same extent in the same place since then so we have to hope that those things are being taken on board and that shipping is getting safer and and can be managed so thank you for listening to the first episode of when it goes wrong i really enjoyed talking about this case and i'd be really interested to hear what you think about it i've added some references to my sources in the show notes uh the the different things that i've read but i'd really like to highlight the book into the raging sea 33 mariners one megastorm and the sinking of the el faro by rachel slade it's a really great book and um, it goes into much much more detail than me uh, uh, than this episode around the ship itself a lot more about the crew and all of the different crew members on board um, and takes a lot more of the transcript and really you know really brings it to life it's a really excellent read um, so i really recommend checking that out if this is a case that you're interested in 
So time now for all the things you're used to on a podcast. Obviously, this is um, one of the first ones that I'm releasing. So please do rate and review it if you enjoyed it. Uh, It's really appreciated and it, it helps others find the show. And I'd really love to connect and hear your thoughts on the show. Haven't created any social media as yet, but I will. And when I do create them, I will put them in the, I put the handles in the show notes. Um, and yeah, please do if send me any thoughts. And if you have any requests for future episodes, I've got a lot of ideas, you know, covering a huge amount of different, different types of disasters from shipping to mountaineering to you know landslides to many things so but i'd love to hear anything that you would would like me to cover 